With me is Father Mick Kelly, the head of the UK News Service, which has made great strides in its expansion into Asia over the last couple of decades, but it wasn't always that simple. And I'm going to start by asking Father Mick Kelly, how did you come to Asia and wind up where you are? Well, there are two questions and there are two answers. But um, how did I come to Asia? Well, Australia's on the tip of Asia, and uh, I got invited to take a job with UCAN uh, in 1980. And I stayed in Hong Kong there for 1980 and 81, and that was just the beginning. I then went back to Australia and did some years of, of study prior to being ordained a priest. And then immediately after I was, I was given a job in, in a, an agency the Jesuits set up in uh, the 1970s called Asian Bureau Australia, which was about heightening the awareness, developing the understanding of Australia's relations with the region, uh, because the Jesuits are very extensively throughout the region. There's a couple of thousand in East and Southeast Asia and about 4,000 in, um, in South Asia. And the Australian Jesuits had actually been connected to South Asia since the 1950s. So it was part of the cultural horizon of the group that I come from. And I remained closely involved with that. Of course, the 1980s was also the time of um, the largest humanitarian crisis until uh, the current one with the Rohingya um, to inflict itself upon some unsuspecting people. And so we had, we had hundreds of thousands of refugees from Indochina, from Vietnam, by boat, by land, from uh, Cambodia, and also, again, others from, um, from Laos. So they all ended up here in Thailand, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, and about 150,000 of them ended up in Australia. And I was tied up with uh, the early days of a thing called the Jesuit Refugee Service, which is now a worldwide organisation, but it was it, the, the principal focus uh, when it started in 1980 was addressing the, um, the Indo-Chinese situation. So th there have been the connections. In the 90s, I had jobs back in Australia, which gave me occasional connection with Asia, and then I came back in the last decade to this job uh, because I'd finished the jobs that I'd been doing and uh, I was looking around, I was in my mid-50s and I was thinking, what's next? And just out of the blue came this offer uh, and so I've been here for over a decade now. It was um, also a very different time for the media, which has changed enormously uh, with the digital age, the, uh, the internet. I mean, I know I'm, I was going to say preaching to the converted, but how, how has that enabled UCAN to kind of spread its wings? Uh, I mean, it's filling demand that uh, and doing, doing the sorts of stories that more mainstream news organisations would do as well. And there's a bit of competition in there, I suspect. Well, I had the good fortune of uh, waking up to the digital age quite early. I'm not naturally a technically inclined person. I prefer to uh, create narrative and gas bag on. Uh, but I got involved in, in uh, what was the unfolding of the digital age because from the late 80s uh, I had a, another job which was about the creation of the publishing um, hub of the Jesuits in Australia. Uh, we traditionally and for about a hundred years had published various magazines around the place but with what 
Steve Jobs did with uh, Apple, uh, the whole game of publishing completely changed and many phases and stages in the production of printed material were eliminated because you, you had composition, editing, layout and design all handled uh, by one person and the only thing that then happened was that it moved to a printer and distributor. Now, cut out print and distribution with, with um, what unfolded through the development of the internet in the 90s and as well as that, understanding how convergent media made possible uh, the apparently absolutely extremely different uh, media of radio, TV and print actually coming together in, in the one context, then you have a totally transformed um, context for this sort of activity. Now, through the advice and assistance I received from a number of people in the 90s, I woke to this quite quickly. And uh, then I developed a business model for being a participant in that and created an organisation um, that really was for the Catholic Church in Australia and for the churches and the not-for-profit sector was really um, the organisation that was able to pioneer the entry of that non-government, non-commercial world into the digital age. But by the mid part of the last decade, I'd had enough. I mean, I'd been there, done that. I'm basically... I'm an initiator. I'm not really a very good maintenance manager. I just get bored too easily. I have to get captured by the idea and, you know, driven by the project. And then this job came out of the blue and uh, this organisation, which I'd known in the 80s, had basically stopped moving and was really trapped in, in the media cul-de-sac that an awful lot of newspapers around the world and magazines have been which is that that cul-de-sac is that they think they can do uh, what they've always done and just slap it up on a website. Um, as we learnt when, when moving from uh, print to radio and radio to TV, TV is not radio with pictures and the internet is not uh, just newspapers online. It's a completely different medium and it's got its own laws and dictates, requirements, restrictions, limitations. Uh, and if you're going to succeed in that place, you've got to understand that it's a completely different medium. Now, UCAN had done none of that. It, it was basically a wire service, uh, which began by, by printing its news and posting it and then uh, started to develop uh, an ability to be able to send it by email and all that. But its market was really newspapers, and newspapers all around the world. But with the transformation that came with digitisation and the internet, um, creators, became, creators of news and information became publishers of news and information, and publishers of news and information became distributors of news and information. So all of those activities had to come together and, and this organisation had to, had to, in technical terms, gear up to it, but it also had to gear up to it in terms of the perspective and understanding that the, that the journalists and editors had about what they were doing and how they were interacting with their readership. Tell me a little bit more about your audience. I mean, you've got uh, the Catholic Philippines and... Islamic Indonesia, it's, it's, it's wide and varied and UCAN does, a, I think, a tremendous job in covering all religions, which is uh, 
it's a, it's an interesting concept because uh, it's something that particularly in the uh, uh, the post nine eleven age counter terrorism that the mainstream media has struggled to deal with. How how, how have you found that uh, in, from, uh, as a Christian based organisation? Uh, the coverage, your audience, and even your relationship with uh, various governments? Well, the first thing to understand about us is, as a Catholic organisation, that doesn't mean we're a propaganda machine for the Vatican or for a bishop or something like that. Um, we are a publisher. We follow the same industrial uh, editorial rules that any real-world, free-world um, publisher follows. The qualifying or defining thing about us is is our mission, and our mission is to, in the most general terms, provide news, features and commentary uh, for, from or about the Catholic Church and its engagement with its context and culture. Now, the Catholics are a substantial minor minority in, in Asia um, and are represented in every single country. Um, some under oppressive conditions, some under quite open conditions. But the, um, the reality is that there's 200, 250 million Catholics in Asia. Now, the qualifying thing about that is that many of them are not English literate. So we have Chinese, Vietnamese, Bahasa, Indonesia editions of what we do. We work very cooperatively with uh, the growing Church of Korea, uh, which, of course, now has a Catholic president, um, where we have trouble getting our stuff, particularly more recently, uh, and getting our stuff into China because they're really into a heavily ideologically driven control mode of uh, blocking out information that they don't, they don't author or, or uh, control. But, you know, Asia is a, a European fiction. It's, um, you know, what's a Sri Lankan got in common with a Korean? What's, what's a Japanese got in common with a Pakistani? I mean, Asia's, Asia's something that the Europeans invented. Um, being an Australian, I can say, I mean, the absurdity of it all was for Australians in the good old days, Asia used to stretch from the Mediterranean uh, almost to Honolulu. That's, you know, we didn't know how to uh, distinguish qualify our, our part of the world, so we just called it Asia. Publishing in Asia is a diverse and complex uh, activity because there are so many cultural and linguistic and geographical differences, education levels, uh, background to understand a context outside the narrow terms of, uh, of a, a particular location. And for us as publishers, I mean, this is always a daily challenge. We have reporters all over Asia uh, who understand their own locality extremely well, but they've got very little idea of uh, the market outside their own country and what they would be interested in. They don't look at their story from the point of view of someone who has no idea of the background or no idea of, of the players, and so unpacking a story so that it becomes appealing to people beyond the, con the confines of the known world, to them, to the author, uh, so that it becomes informative to people outside that context is, is always a challenge. And of course that was always a role picked up by the foreign correspondent and now 
we're seeing more and more local journalists employed in, in that role. Or not. Uh, the reality is that the, the talent pool for international reporting is, is declining. And uh, then you have the situation of the declining significance of the wire services. Uh, those that are subsidised, like AFP, continue to pump on, but uh, the others, AP, Reuters, uh, it's costing them so much to provide the service and their old clients, the newspapers, are not there anymore to be able to pay the fees to pay the wages that are due to the reporters. So you're looking, you're looking at an ever-diminishing pool of people to report it. Now, our particular mission is... You know, I mean, we're here in Thailand and there's been 12 months of mourning and it's going to come to a high point with the cremation of the king and, you know, then the uncertainty of the politics that will unfold out of that and uh, the uh, elevation of the crown prince. Well, he's already been made king, but he will be crowned and installed. Uh, all of that is... That's not our stuff. It's it's not our, our, uh, our brief or our or our wicket. But what is our wicket is things that deeply affect the services and activities of the church. So, you know, we've been second to none. In fact, we've led in the coverage of the Rohingya. Um, we've been doing that for years. In fact, I think no one actually knew who the Rohingya were four or five years ago. And then suddenly the New York Times discovered them and wrote a couple of features about it. But we'd already been reporting on that for some time and uh, sometimes we've done it very well sometimes we've done it poorly uh, but certainly in this crisis we've we've led the world now why are we doing that we're doing that because um, it's a basic Christian concern uh, which is represented all over Europe with the uh, with the um, arrival of, of the people from North Africa and Syria um, to welcome the stranger. It's one of the oldest principles of the Judeo-Christian world. It's there written through the whole legacy of monasticism, that hospitality is is a central Christian virtue, offering hospitality to the stranger or the wayfarer or the traveller. Now here you have people forced out of where they are and that, that instinctually um, appeals to something that's essential to the whole Christian vocation. So that's why we report it. Then, of course, part of what we report is what various parts of the church are doing in conflict zones where there's religious persecution, uh, fostering an understanding among the various religions that leads to respecting each other, all that sort of stuff. That, that's, that's our wicket. It's, it's, it's extremely broad. It's also a changing wicket. Uh, we're seeing what we're seeing in Cambodia at the moment, uh, to some extent Thailand since the coup, uh, Vietnam, it's a bit of a mixed bag. The Philippines under Duterte has been anything but pleasant. How do you see the region unfolding over the next couple of years or, long, or further out? Well, I'm not Nostradamus and I don't know, but I'm, I must say... In terms of the way the future will be shaped, what you've got to do is look at the resources for shaping it and what you've got to say about, about a lot of Asia, well, perhaps more Southeast Asia and South Asia, 
is just how under-resourced for, for coping with that change um, the various countries are. I mean, we're all pretty familiar with, with uh, how Myanmar is scripted for failure. Um, the much both lauded and lamented uh, democratic leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, really has her hands tied and has always had her hands tied because the military still runs that place. Um, what will happen out of it? Well, I hope she keeps her cool. She's the only thing going for the place. If she disappears, evaporates or is neutralised, the country, the country just goes back into its Neanderthal condition. Um, but then when you look at, when you look at South Asia and, and Modi is, is, you know, is an old-fashioned, uh, religiously prejudiced, uh, self-promoting person who had a very mixed legacy in Gujarat, most of it his own exaggerated self-promotion, but the opposition just doesn't exist. I mean, they're discredited, they're unprofessional, uh, and they don't carry the day. No, the real and besetting problem in Asia is that is something that's very familiar to anyone in the West. It is uh, there's no vision. If you look back to the to the generations of those people who formed the early countries, I mean, Panchasila in Indonesia, and you know the the, the national socialism of Nehru in India, and so on and so on. All this stuff. Uh, led to sometimes um, not terribly successful experiments in nation building. So you have, you know, the Nehru period, which basically didn't work. National socialism left the country impoverished. Um, you, you've had the absurdity of Mao and the Cultural Revolution, and then you had Deng Xiaoping dredging it out of that. But what's it going back into? I mean, everybody says he's the most powerful person in charge of China since Mao Zedong and I'm afraid I've been alive long enough to believe that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely uh, and that's what you know so in looking at that we're looking at you know two and a half billion people in the Asian region um, in political circumstances that are highly problematic. What's the future for Father Mick Kelly? Uh, I know th there are a few plans for you, Cam, particularly, as you mentioned before, with the bigger agencies struggling to raise money. Uh, UCAN has to go it alone as well. Where, where do you see the agency progressing towards uh, and it, its, its coverage of the re region and its business model? Well, UCAN uh, has grown out of a number of... Uh, instincts and impulses, but was largely uh, staffed by people for whom English was at best their second language. Um, very few of them with very much uh, journalistic skill and capacity, uh, because if you look across Asia, there are actually very few instances of good media cultures. Where there was a good media culture was in India, which has been absolutely wrecked by the commercialisation of it that's reduced most of the significant newspapers in India uh, to being advertorial. Uh, so you're not, getting, you're not getting anything other than the news that people are paying to have reported. Now, where does UCAN go? Its business model was a quite traditional, old-fashioned 
Catholic model of basically operating as a charity. Um, you know, the Catholic Church runs all sorts of uh, charitable enterprises, uh, looking after all, all sorts of needy groups. Also has a huge, throughout Asia, a huge education network. That sort of edged its way towards, uh, towards a commercial approach by charging school fees. Um, hospitals also, there are loads and loads of hospitals, but they charge fees and make money out of insurance and all that sort of stuff. Media is the poor relation in the church in terms of its activities because it's always been perceived as uh, cash-consuming. It's also in the minds of many leaders of the church throughout the world is just seen as a propaganda platform. They don't understand that the worst thing they can do for their own message is to convey it as if it were just, you know, the message from mission control that was to be absorbed and accepted by everybody. They don't understand the, the democratic pluralist nature of media and that the only way it will be trusted is if it's at arm's length from authority. Now, Sounds like a lot of governments in the region too. Correct. It is, this is, and this, it's the same thing. I mean, Pravda, uh, the People's Daily... Uh, La Servitore Romano, they're all in the same stable. And most most bishops think about um, media as just another propaganda platform, you know, another place for giving a, giving a sermon. Uh, it is an industry in its own right. It has its own limitations and permissions, its boundaries uh, and all of that. It's, it's a professional activity and you can't have a form of Catholic journalism. It's about as stupid as saying we're running a school, it's a Catholic school, and there's a thing called Catholic mathematics. Well, there isn't. There's maths, and that's what people study, and they learn to do sums and calculus and all the rest of the stuff. Likewise with journalism. There's journalism, but then comes the question of where it's focused, and it's focused by its mission, and that's what we do. As for the future of UCAN, uh, it was as plain as a pike staff to me when I came here that two things had to happen. Uh, we had to upgrade the quality of the material that we were producing. We had to be able to uh, move beyond the fairly rudimentary level of reporting that we were doing uh, and move much more into features and commentary. We had to go up the value chain and we had to do that with all the technologies that we now have of audio and audiovisual and not just print and text. So that was the challenge for the first half of my time here then. But I knew from the beginning that uh, the business model we were operating on was not long for this world for a couple of simple reasons. Basically, the claims on the donors that we were approaching were increasing massively because of uh, you know all the hemorrhaging through particularly Africa, but also different parts of Asia. The other thing is that the Catholic Church in Asia is now a very substantial operation, and there are some very wealthy parts of it. It's about time the Asians stood up and took responsibility for themselves and stopped toddling off with the begging bowl to Europe and North America, um, because relatively speaking, Europe and North America... Are, are diminishing in terms of their wealth level and their capacity to share what surplus they've got. 
So what that meant is that UCAN had to, had to develop uh, a commercial model where there would be a fee for service. What's our service? Our service is basically editorial, editorial marketing and promotion. How could we create projects for which we would be paid by clients? And we've got several of those now. Uh, we're still not making enough money, of course, uh, but we're headed in the right, the right direction. And uh, your, your own long-term plans? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been running the whole show. I actually have three jobs or two and a half jobs. One is uh, running the day-by-day -day operations of UCAN. The other is pushing and promoting the commercial initiatives. And then I am a priest and I have loads and loads of pastoral work of births, deaths and marriages, masses and all that sort of stuff. Plus, I also have um, personal care of about 90 Pakistani Christian uh, uh, asylum seekers here in Bangkok, whom I uh, got to know through various contacts in the church in Pakistan, and people there asked me to help these people out, and I'm working to get them resettled in Canada. So it's a busy day, and a quite exhausting one. So what I've done now is, is separate the commercial activities from the day-to-day -day running of the news service and I will move out of doing the latter uh, and concentrate particularly on the, uh, on the commercial initiatives uh, because we've reached a level of editorial maturity that doesn't require my, my constant intervention. Uh, we also have administratively uh, and financially, or in terms of financial administration, a far better situation now than the one that I inherited and quite frankly we've invested heavily in training staff and we've got much better. We've got the same staff but they're much better because we've invested in training in them. The, the refugees I know is an issue that is close to your heart. It's not just the Rohingyas, there's the, the North Koreans, the Uyghurs, the Montanards coming through Vietnam, there's issues at border posts and there's issues with the UNHCR. What, what do you think that the region as a block, if you can call it that, but uh, Asian, South Asia, is there anything they can do to improve the plight, and the UN uh, for that matter, that they can do to improve the plight of these people who really are kind of stranded right across the region with nowhere to go? Of course there is, and just as confidently as I say, of course there is, I would confidently predict they won't. If you look at the record of ASEAN, they haven't agreed on anything. They don't do anything together. It's a great talk fest. It, it can't even deliver on what you would think would be in their own interest. They can't even organise themselves as a trading block. Now, with, with the, the key phenomenon of this part of the world being the, uh, the conundrum of, of people movement, I mean, it's just too hard for them to get, get their heads around it. As for the UN, the greatest bunch of overpaid, lazy laggards that I have ever seen. They are just hopeless. I mean, these 90-odd these odd Pakistanis, I know them. I'm, I, I know them well because they've been here for years and then took the UN three to four years to get around to interviewing them when they interviewed them, I don't know where they plucked the interviewers from. I think they just went down to a railway station and grabbed some backpackers and said, come up and do some interviewing. Because these idiots were interviewing people 
who had fled the country under a fatwa, namely, if they stayed in Pakistan, they'd be as dead as mutton, and these idiots couldn't get that through them, and then made judgments to say that these people were safe to go home. I mean, I'm not a fan of President Trump. The one thing I agree on him, agree with him is he should absolutely rattle the life out of these UN agencies that are gross and bloated and useless, absolutely useless. I mean, last week I had one of the families, I mean, it's a tragic story. This guy's been here for five years. He's been in and out of the immigration detention centre. He's got four kids and having rejected him two years ago, suddenly they had a change of heart and they found, oh, Miracolo, he's a refugee. Well, blind Freddie knew he was a refugee. I knew he was a refugee. Why could these dimwits not get it through their head that this guy came here in fear of his life and could not go back? Because that's the key thing about a refugee. You, is the person safe to return to where they've come from? And if they're not, then they should be given asylum and resettlement somewhere else. That's the key condition. These guys did not help to clarify that. Most of the Pakistanis I'm dealing with are from the lowest rung of Pakistani society. Very few of them are properly educated and articulate in English, for which they then get persecuted by the dimwits at the UNHCR. Fortunately, there is a country called Canada. They have alternative methods for determining the refugee status. Uh, they also have the practical means for sponsorship and settlement. And that's where I put all the eggs of my basket. They have exactly the same program that I was involved in 30 years ago in Australia in resettling the Indo-Chinese. It was a community-based supported system where people were welcomed into the community, their kids were got into school, they were helped to find accommodation, the adults were encouraged either to start their own business or go and get jobs around that were appropriate to their, to their capacity. Now, that's alive and well and still there in Canada, and it's a tragedy that, that I mean, I, I personally, you know, went to both recent Prime Ministers, Abbott and, and Turnbull, they didn't even know that it was a, a coalition policy that was implemented in the early 1980s. They don't even know their own history. And so what happens is they just put the shutters up to these people and don't engage the resources of the community in the process of resettlement. It's, it's a very dim-witted way to approach this issue. You're talking about the um, Australian government and Australian Prime Ministers Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, and Australia has been criticised uh, for its handling of refugees uh, uh, over the past couple of decades now. It's a, the, the attitudes certainly have changed. Um, it, just quickly, uh, Asia, uh, Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, the relationship with the rest of the world, do you think it's... Um, is it improving? Uh, are they becoming more closeted? Uh, it seems to always to be a little bit of both. Very hard to generalise, but the bottom line is um, this is China's century. What about, what about Africa? I mean, they virtually own Africa and manage Africa, and this, this One Belt, One Road thing is, 
is a masterstroke by Xi because he's actually going to physically own most of the world. He's going to own most of the world's infrastructure. The sort of money that he's loaning around the place, the locals will never be able to repay. So guess what will happen? The old story, when, when you go broke, the people you owe the money to resume your property. So who's going to own it all? The Chinese will. On that note, I'd like to thank Father Mick Kelly. Uh, thank you very much. It's a terrific interview. Thanks, Luke. Cheers.